0: I'm great.
1: How are you? I'm I'm much much better. As we were just discussing before we hit record, I'm finally (laughs) over my jet lag from having traveled to Samoa in the middle. Like I don't know, for only six days in the middle of March, and here it is April. But yeah, no, it's like I was there for six days, and it's taken me two and a half weeks to recover from the jet lag. Is it me? Probably. It's probably me. You know.
0: We maybe maybe in a future episode we should get someone on here who's an expert on circadian rhythm dysfunction and jet lag I had feel li- like anthropologists could really use all of that knowledge. <laughs> you
1: no, know, it's funny because we've talked a little bit about we haven't talked about it with regard to jet lag, but we've talked about like circadian rhythms and sleep. We've had a bunch of sleep researchers on, and every time we do, I'm just like, oh shit, I have the worst habits. I'm gonna <laughs> like have corn. I remember Dan Lieberman's like talk. We were talking about. Uh, That one reminded me I shouldn't eat late at night. And I'm like, oh, Oh, no. (laughs) And another one, you know, every single one of these, is like, oh, man, I'm doing everything wrong. But I'm 50, so am I going to change now? Okay, I'm not 50, I'm 52. But anyway, (laughs) something like that. It makes jet lag hard. And and you were just saying how unlikely you would be to travel to, like, India or something for less than six days. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of insane. And one of the things and one of the reasons I did it. Um, because it's on an NSF grant, and the grant didn't budget for me just to go and do this, like do such short trips. But I talked to another guest that we had on this show, Jessica Harden, about this who works in Samoa. And she was like, you know, communicating with your local collaborators and, and developing these relationships can't really be done well via email and Zoom. And we owe it Absolutely. to them not just to sort of share our resources, but to to not helicopter in and out, uh, which, you know, and, and so sometimes what that means is we've just got to go spend the money and and get and give, our, give them FaceTime um, with us so that we all have the opportunity to hear what each other are thinking, have time away from that to think about it, come back together, talk about it, and then make plans. And I spent most of the time trying not to die from the heat. Because <laughs> it was summer there, and I was in an unair-conditioned place. The meetings, like I'd have, like one meeting a day, and be like, "Oh my god, I'm getting so little done." But I got everything done I needed to get done. I met met with some folks, gave a seminar, got community buy-in, and developed a collaboration. And I'm I'm worried a little bit about the money, but on the, at the same time, it's actually moving the project forward, and I think it's the right thing to do.
0: I feel like there's been a lot of conversation on Twitter and other mediums about thinking about older practices of anthropology and i think that the deep hanging out remains consistent and how we're doing the hanging out has changed as technology has evolved but you know nothing really substitutes just going and being there and hanging out with people
1: yeah that's true the deep hanging out sounds like a title for a paper the deep hanging I out know. All right. I think
0: it's like Clifford Geertz, maybe. I don't know. Pretty sure you can check that.
1: That (laughs) that would be deep play and thick description or something like that.
0: Excited to have some deep hanging out with our our newest uh, guest today. So today we're going to be talking with Florence Lee, who is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of Albany, SUNY. So, Chris, your neck of the woods.
1: Uh, Yes, we we share an advisor.
0: uh, She researches the effects of modernization on physiological variation by focusing on the relationship between environmental exposures and immune function. She studies how pollutant exposure is associated with autoimmune dysfunction in Native American women and examines how pollutant exposure affects the immune system in experimental studies.
1: So I think she's uh, so. Uh, We say that there's a publication under review in our questions, but I think this is out, right? Or is this a new paper? So
0: we're going to, hopefully, we're going to talk about two publications. She has a paper that came out in AJHB in 2022, and she has Mm -hmm. a new publication that is currently under review. Gotcha. So hopefully we can get her to talk about both of those excellent publications. Looks like there's some very uh, fun chemicals that we'll be talking about here. Um with the aquasosne Mohawk women.
1: Well done. You got the pronunciation just right. Yeah. So uh Larry Shell, uh, her advisor, my advisor, studies persistent organic pollutants and how those impact health. Uh he's been working with the, you know, working with, and this is a good this is why I say this, because Larry taught me this, working with the aquasne mohawk nation to develop and and do all of the research design and data collection. So this is new research, new data they've collected since I graduated. I graduated in 2009, and it looks like from the paper that these data have been collected. And I want to note that the co-authors are both Larry Shell, the Akwesasne Mohawk Nation, and Mia Gallo, who's been working for Larry for a long time, also got a PhD with him, trained me. So props to Mia. Let us, let's bring in Flo. What's up, Flo? Hi. <laughs> Good to see you. Hello,
2: welcome. Hi, good to see you guys.
1: It's been a while, I think. Yeah. I don't think I saw you at the meetings last year, yeah?
2: No, yeah. I think last time, I think New Orleans.
1: No, it's been a while.
2: Yeah, it's been a minute.
1: I and I and I never noticed this till right now, but I think it's super cool. Your email is flee (laughs) to. flee flee, flee to Albany.
2: I'm 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 yeah, and I'm fleet too. So I'm wondering who Flea one is. I, know, that's
1: exactly what I was thinking too. I was like, who's the flea, flea to Albany? There's probably a Flea, a Flea one to Albany, but yeah. you're but you get the two, which is perfect. So you, every time you have to go back to school, you flee to Albany. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. It's long overdue.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: And it's actually I realized the first time, although we've had Larry on once and we've had Liz on twice. Can't think of if we've had other Albany folks on, but you know i I study with Larry too and do, and I was trained by Mia, but I never got involved in the persistent organic pollutants research um so it's we've never actually had the opportunity to talk about this, I think on the podcast, even though I talk about this research when I teach. Human biology every single semester. Oh, awesome. Well, we always start in a different way. First, we want to start like we're acting like all familiar, but like you guys haven't met yet. Yeah, okay. this is
0: the first time. I'm so excited to chat with you today. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm glad I get to see you face to face. Yes. I want to know how you got into anthropology. So, you know, what was your journey? What was your trajectory? How did you get into this work? Like, how did you find yourself here? Oh, yeah. So I, uh,
2: this is, this is my dog, Nausicaa. Um, <laughs> even though I have headphones on, I'm pretty sure she hears other people talking. Amazing. So she's excited she, to she, have the opportunity to be pet. She's a good girl. She's such a good girl. Is, this, is good girl. This, uh, the name deriving from the Odyssey, Nausicaa? Um From the Ghibli movie, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Oh, Goldwind. okay, okay. <laughs> We're big fans of Miyazaki movies and Lord of the Rings. I have two cats, actually, that's uh, named Mary and Pippin. Oh, my God. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so But back to your question, the reason that I got into anthropology, I I think it was in college and I've never heard about anthropology. I don't think I've ever met an anthropologist. So I think I originally took my first anthro class because it fit into my schedule at the time. Uh, I heard good things about the professor and I really enjoyed the class. I think we had a guest speaker who was a forensic anthropologist.
1: And where was this? Where'd you go? Uh,
2: Michigan State. Michigan State had a very big forensic anthro program, and one of the guest speakers, he would talk about his cases and why he got into forensic anthropology, and I thought that was really cool, and that was also the time period where um, Bones, the TV show, was on, and I'm showing my age a little bit because I'm pretty sure Bones (laughs) has been off the air for years, so I I watched a TV show, I took the class, I thought it was cool, Uh, and I took more anthropology courses, and I really liked the perspective, the anthropological perspective about understanding the relationship between biology and culture and how that can affect health outcomes. And that's part of the reason why I'm doing my research now is because I'm still really interested in that relationship. I think I got more into environmental exposures and the immune system, I think just from hearing a lot of stuff about pollutant exposures and how it can affect your health. And that's sort of how I started my trajectory.
1: Is that how you found uh, Albany and, and... exactly? <laughs> so you went there on purpose to work with him, and this is no slight to him because he's been one of the hugest influences on my career. But I I went because there was a nearby program that had biocultural anthropology that I could <laughs> commute to, and it was it was close enough. But I'd never heard of any of this this stuff. But one of the things I also wanted to comment on is 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 bones, right? Like so many students have come to us, yes. In the, when I was in grad school, this was my age, it was Indiana Jones. And then when I started teaching, it was Bones. And now that it's off the air, I'm like, we need another bad show out right. there to bring people to anthropology because <laughs> it works. So, you know,
0: I am curious about, you know, you got interested in, in the environmental aspects of it, but how did you get involved with working with the Akwesasne Mohawk women? So I know that it sounds like Larry's been working with Akwesasne Mohawk nation for a very long time. But the and I, we have more questions later talking about, you know, the relationships that formed with Native American partnerships and how that works and how we can potentially use that as a model up for anthropologists moving forward. But what was your personal experience been like working mm. with that with that group?
2: So largely so online so a lot lots of emails and a lot of the data collection a lot of the research that i'm working the data itself that i'm working on now it was collected a while back when the community partnership model sort of first began and it's really been just communicating my research and sort of sending off my results the manuscript things like that to aqua task force on the environment having them look it over see if it's cool um if not, like, if there's anything I could change, repeat, pretty much.
1: So uh, this is one of the things I learned from being a grad student there at Albany as well, and that I'm I'm increasingly uh, waking up to is, is how we are transitioning from sort of thinking of our institutions as like the first line of like where we vet our research to like, wait, no, we should actually be working with the community first to make sure... This is something that they support and approve of, and I know from his presentations and, and and working side by side there with Mia Gallo, who I think did some of the data collection yeah. here, that that the Aquasasni have strong strong beliefs and research acumen, and and have really been central in the development of this project. And it has actually taken me a while to come around because I think some of the fear as a grad student or a new professor is that we don't want to be told we, we've come up with an idea it's been approved by our institution and then we're kind of afraid that the the community won't be into it so we sort of push it out there anyway and I actually had this sort of experience in Samoa where I was talking to someone and I was like talking about I was already there you know I'm there and I'm saying oh you know is, are we going to be able to do this research is are you guys still okay with it and he was kind of looking at me and he's like I guess you're going to do what you're going to do. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Does that mean I'm being pushy and pushing myself in and like, you don't want to say no or right. So I think all of that, how you got there, what are you going to take away from that sort of how you develop that relationship with them in your future work? I guess that's sort of what what I'm leading up to.
2: I have learned a lot about like making and maintaining relationships with community members um, just from working with Larry and working with the Aquasasne Task Force on the Environment. And it's really opened my eyes to the amount of just time and effort that's put in into just like starting the relationship and just maintaining it. And especially with the history with outside researchers and members of the Aquasasne, you know, way way back when, I say way back when, but I think it was 70s, 80s. So not that long ago, comparatively, It it would be the case where researchers, outside scientists would come in and they would have these preconceived ideas of what the research should be and how it should take place with no input from community members at all. And then they would sort of just do their thing, collect samples, get data, and then just book it. They would just leave. Not a lot would be explained to community members who actually were participants in the study and were actually giving biological samples. And They would only hear about the results of the study. I I mean, just in passing, like if it was uh, in various, you know, news outlets or something. It really only benefited the researchers, and it really opened my eyes to how things are changing now. Where there's this community partnership model, it's it's like it's a joint group of effort. It's where you're trying to maximize the benefits for both groups by working on what the community wants and what they need, and doing that with as much scientific rigor as possible. What I take away from it is how how important it is, and also how effective it can be in trying in getting the amount of data, like trying to get the type of data you want, especially with uh, trying to get interviews uh, and health outcome data, and actually communicating that. So, can we just backtrack very quickly
0: a bit, and can you explain what is the Aquasasmi? Akwesasne- Mohawk Task Force? Like, what exactly is it? Who makes up it? I guess, across what time period does it exist?
2: Oh, yeah. So it the Aguasasani Task Force on the Environment, it's um an Indigenous environmental organization, and it's made up of, like, community members, And one of their main goals is to ensure that health related information, it reaches the community and also to make sure that community needs are represented uh, when talking with outside organizations like academic institutions. So they're like they're essentially um, people that I personally like communicate and talk with um, and they're co-authors on all the papers that I have uh, worked on with Akwasasne.
1: And so since you're, you get to be the ambassador for this project, right, which has been going on for probably 30 years or so, right? Yeah, a long time. Can you give us a little bit of background on, obviously, the Aquasasni are a Mohawk people. Why are we looking at these persistent organic pollutants in relation to them? Like, what's the backstory?
2: Let me backtrack a little bit. So the Alcosazi Mohawk Nation is located along the St. Lawrence River. And so they have um, it's borders like New York State and Canada. And around the 1900s, there was some development going on to use the St. Lawrence River as, uh, as a cheaper source of hydroelectricity. And a lot of companies like General Motors uh, would be building manufacturing, distributing Plants along that river. After it was all set up, people started to realize that the uh, surrounding wildlife and the land was not as it should be. It wasn't as healthy as it was, and it turns out that there were some waste byproducts that were sort of being dumped into like the river or the land, and it would seep in and seep into the land governed by the Aquasazi Moak Nation. That that's sort of how it all started, and. It, it goes back to 1900s to the this kind of contamination and how it affects members of the aquasassiloc nation it's been a process um, and I'm because the amount of the type of chemical pollution or environmental exposures uh, it was just a it was a legal and political struggle just to state that this was not normal and this was not happening before these plants came here to trying to figure out what to do about all these exposures that the community Mm -hmm. was facing uh, and continue to face still.
1: For listeners who don't know, I, I, I keep saying the word that I learned and I forget to define it. So persistent organic pollutants are pollutants that don't break down naturally in the environment. They tend to be uh lipophilic they like hang out in fat and then like bottom feeder like catfish or stuff eat eat it and then they get eaten up the food chain and so the aquasassini themselves were then finding themselves contaminated and it was having birth defects and uh so a lot of the previous research that i am familiar with is on looking at growth and cognitive development but what's really interesting is what is what you're doing so your your forthcoming dissertation and i assume the articles that you're you're working on here are looking at the relationship between the pollutant exposure and autoimmune disease, which is, as we know, epidemic. Um, My wife has autoimmune disease. I know tons of people with autoimmune disease. And then you have a a couple papers. One is coming out, but one that's just been published in the American Journal of Human Biology called Associations Between Autoimmune Dysfunction and Pollutants in the Aquasasne Mohawk Women. DDT and, and PCBs. PCBs. I, I can't say the chemical names, so I'm going to say the abbreviations. That's so,
2: perfectly fine.
1: <laughs> so can, you, can you then unpack then a little bit more about what these pollutants do and talk about the, the findings?
2: So they're both persistent organic pollutants, and DDT was originally formulated as a pesticide to combat malaria. Uh, Very effective, but they found that it also caused a lot of adverse health effects in humans and in wildlife. Actually, there was a study that was done a while back that they found that DDT exposure affected the bald eagle population. It caused eggshell thing, which led to a decrease in the bald eagle population. And so DDT was a pesticide. It's banned in the U.S. Uh, It's been banned since the 70s. One of the health effects is it's a possible human carcinogen, and there's also a lot of immune-related effects that we're still trying to figure out. Similar to PCBs that are also persistent organic pollutants, they are man-made chemicals, and there are 209 different congeners or types of PCBs, depending on the number of chlorine atoms and the location of those uh, in the PCB molecule. And they're typically used in industrial products, but they they can also be found in everyday things like paint or window caulking. They're good insulators. It's also been banned since the 70s, like DDT, but because they're persistent, uh, people are still being exposed to this day. And there was an NHANES study that was done a few years back, and they found that Kids still had a measurable amount of these pollutants in their system, even though they weren't even born. You know, the pollutants were banned. So it's something that we still see to this day.
0: I know that there's been like a lot of conversation about, you know, like don't put plastics, don't put Tupperware in the dishwasher, things like that, because of PCBs. Like you can get water bottles and they have like the stamp that says like no PCB. So it's it is it is pervasive in the consumer world but not everyone really understands what it means
2: and what it actually does to human bodies.
1: I think that's a different chemical, but same principle.
2: Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, I actually talk about a paper and uh, a couple of studies that talk about the leaching that happens in plastic products when you put them through any type of uh, like the microwave dishwasher, or even leaving out in the car in the hot sun. It's one of the things that Seems very eye-opening to students and to people in general when they find out that you can't, like, you shouldn't microwave your plastic because you might be getting exposed to these endocrine disruptors that can affect your health or reproductive outcomes. It's it's always a good reminder to me to someone who's just been examining, like, studying this for such a long time that there's still a way to communicate how these endocrine disruptors or these pollutants can be so pervasive even in everyday life.
1: So then in this study, there were new samples taken. So when I was there, like there were a lot of measurements taken, but it looks like there was new data collected. I think it was between 2009 and 2013, yes. something like that. So serum blood samples, who were the participants? Who were we looking at? Was it kids, uh, adults, adults?
2: Uh, It was women, Aquasazi Mohawk women. The actual aim of that particular study was to examine the reproductive system and how exposure to these pollutants affected Mohawk women. Something else that was also collected was markers of immune dysfunction. So things like uh, thyroid proxies, antibodies, stuff like that was also taken as well around the same time.
1: So there's two tables that I saw. One is looking at the relationship between I think the congeners and disease rates, and then there was like one significant correlation. And then when you added in like age and BMI, right? So there's some lifestyle factors. What did you find?
2: Uh, Found select PCB congeners about I want to say five PCB congeners and DDT were found to be significantly correlated with autoimmune dysfunction, which was an interesting finding because the PCBs were non-dioxin-like. So you usually hear more about dioxin-like congeners. So there's a few differences between dioxin-like and non-dioxin-like congeners. One of the differences is the biological pathway. Non-dioxin-like congeners can activate the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. Think of it as a protein that can mediate toxicity. So if you activate that, then it could be related to immunotoxicity.
1: So the non-dioxin-like congeners activate toxicity. Yes. So they amplify sort of like your body attacking itself. Yeah. Wow.
0: I want to talk about how that is connected to your upcoming paper that is, I know it's currently under review, about the antithyroid peroxidase antibodies.
2: Oh, yeah, sure. It's actually um, doing this podcast came at the right time because I just got reviewer comments back. So that's that study, we found a statistical association between exposure to uh, PCB congener 33 and hexachlorobenzene, which is also a pesticide. It controls fungi that can affect wheat. And we found that PCB congener 33 and hexachlorobenzene, HCB for short, was related to elevated levels of thyroid peroxidase antibodies, which can be used as a marker for autoimmune thyroid disease.
0: These are quite a number of various chemicals that are causing potentially like substantial problems to these individual bodies. How pervasive are these chemicals? Is it just because in this particular region that has this history of industrial? Action and industrial activity, or is this something that we're probably seeing nationwide, globally?
2: I I do think that overall, the chemical exposure is pervasive. Chemical pollutant exposures can travel through like air, water, what have you. So, right now, we're probably exposed to a dozen different chemicals and pollutants. But in particular, with members of the Akwesasemok Nation, they do have higher than normal levels of certain chemicals, including PCBs, because of the location of these toxic waste sites um, or like the manufacturing plants that dumped chemicals uh, into the water and into the land.
1: So let's unpack that. What's the burden then for them? Like, what are the implications for them, not just in terms of having autoimmune disorder, but what are the consequences of having autoimmune disorder for the women in this community and for their community in general?
2: It's a lot, I I guess, in in general, uh, because autoimmune disease is so just getting it even diagnosed is so it takes such a long time. And you need so many tests to even start doing that. Even then, like you could start having symptoms before you can even get a clinical diagnosis. It could be painful and it could be long. And that's even before diagnosis. So the burden of that, I think, is huge, um, especially for because Native American communities are disproportionately affected by autoimmune disease and environmental exposures, pollutant exposures in general.
1: So yeah, we've we got these dual burdens. That's, I wasn't clear, since I've never been up there, uh, what the community's like, what the resource availability's like.
0: I'm, I'm curious how this dual burden is, is processed by the communities now. The kinds of healthcare that are accessed. I know in the United States, like you had mentioned, since the 70s, they're really cracking down on um, these kinds of chemicals because they have these huge, massive, terrible impacts on human bodies. And I know things are a little bit more complicated when you're working with with registered nations and the different laws that can go in different locations. I don't know if this is something that you've been working with, uh, being on the science end, but do you have any insight about legislature or practice? Do you have, like, even if you are not directly involved with it, do you have thoughts on how things should move forward?
2: I do. I, I think there definitely can be more done. But so there was a huge trend about about BPA being terrible for you. So you saw a lot of things saying BPA free or doesn't have any BPA. But then there were some studies that showed that even though these companies weren't using BPA, they use substitutes for BPA that could be just as harmful or even worse for you than BPA. And so I I definitely think that like communicating to a more general audience, like doing this podcast, for example, uh, is really important to sort of. Get the word out that even if there is like marketing saying like this is safer for you, just try to think like, is it really safer? Like what's the substitute that was used in order to make this thing supposedly
1: safer for you? I I was going to ask if you had any recommendations in that regard. But what I want to ask is instead what, what you're doing next, right? Like are you on the verge of defending and then do you have other projects in mind? So like what's next for flow?
2: I I will be graduating this May, but um, thank you. Uh, Hopefully that's happening. Um, I already bought my plane ticket. I'm in Michigan right now. So (laughs) Um, what I would really like to look at is um, understanding biological pathways of how pollutant exposure affects the immune system My dissertation work was about implementing an experimental study that was based off of the exposures that women from the Aquasazi Mohawk Nation experienced. And seeing that if I could see the biological mechanisms or a biological pathway in mice, unfortunately, it ended prematurely because of COVID. So my results are not great. Uh, But that's why I like to look into more looking at biological pathways of how potent exposure affects the immune system.
0: That's really cool stuff. Uh, also, as a fellow Michigander,
2: yay! Go, oh, be really. <laughs> <in Michigan. laughs>
0: oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, because- I grew up. I grew up like right in one of the Detroit suburbs, so very familiar with the area.
2: <laughs> Me too. That's awesome. I um, when I actually started going to grad school at Albany um, in upstate New York, we had like a, a, a like a pizza party thing, and I was the only person that put like ranch. Like, I dip my pizza in oh ranch. Oh, my gosh. And everyone looked at me so crazy. At well, like, it was the weirdest thing to do. And I didn't it's realize it's a Michigan, thing. That's a Michigan <laughs> thing.
1: I'm totally judging you both right now.
2: <laughs> I saw you shaking your head, but it's delicious. And yes, yes. <laughs> you got to have your pizza and
0: ranch and your burners pop. and your Yes, pizza.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: I don't, I don't know. There's like a fetish with ranch in general. I, my, I fight with my kids. They put ranch on their buffalo wings. And I'm like, yo, blue cheese, man. What the hell? <laughs>
0: That's okay. I, I'm a weirdo. I, I have my wings with sour cream. I don't think anyone does that. <laughs> that
2: That is new to me. It's delicious. It's, it's so <laughs> I'll have to try it. Because I, I am also I a blue cheese that. buffalo
1: fan yeah I'll admit (laughs) when there's nothing else and I'm cheating sour cream ricotta whatever's in the fridge for texture creamy creamy.
2: throw a little
1: lemon juice on that or vinegar to give it a you know it's
2: a little acid kick
1: uh uh-huh
0: it's excellent well we're really (laughs) excited for your for your future defense and graduation that must be like very very exciting to be at the you know the end of the
2: tunnel The end of the dark COVID impacted tunnel. I'm I'm so thrilled, just beyond belief. I had so many gray hairs since the start of my graduate, like of my just graduate school journey. I'm I'm excited. I'm ready to take off. Coming out,
0: coming out the other end. Are
2: are we going to be seeing you in Reno? Uh, no, unfortunately not. But um, I I think,
0: but maybe LA the following year. Maybe, yes. Yes. I think that LA is a little bit more attractive of a location.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm totally stoked to be having a conference in a casino. So you know. Oh all, my gosh! And, and you
0: know, you know that it's like a like a full full casino, like I know. fully run casino.
1: I don't I even know what I'm presenting on. I, I just know where <laughs> which 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 things I'm going to put party at. So.
0: Do slots in the morning and then go straight to your talk right after. It'll mm-hmm. be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah multitask. <laughs>
1: I so love it. well, when you're in l a right we wanna we wanna get the uh h b a talent show going again, so, if you were to participate in h b a talent show, what would your talent be
2: i so I was actually hoping we wouldn't get to this question <laughs> because i I was thinking about it was the hardest thing that i I thought about. I was like racking my brain, so I am spectacularly bad at racing video games so you I like I'm at the starting line and like I start dead like it's just instant (laughs) um it's a rare talent it (laughs) it is because people have asked me if like I'm actually trying and I say yeah I am I like I move my (laughs) I I move like my like with the turns my body to like try to get going always last place or dead um
1: But you could but you could drive a real car, I assume, right? I
2: can, I can. It's it's completely different yeah. in real life.
1: It is. I'm I'm not I'm not good at those games either. I don't think I die quite that quick, but yeah, I I can I can. Uh,
0: I feel can. like it would be a a really fun activity to watch. We could have like a projector and a screen, yeah. and you could be doing it, could just, could like have, stream it exactly. Have people cheering.
1: Given the talent that I see the kids displaying, like you know. The, the, the rest of us showing our ineptness would really entertain a lot of the younger children oh, on yeah, games. <laughs> you know, uh, last night I went in, my kid's playing the shooter game, and it's it must have been Call of Duty or something, and somebody walks out, and he, he's shooting me, he's like, yo, that dude, like... He just got busted. I'm like, well, he didn't even look at it. He just ran right out. He's like, you hear that? My dad doesn't even play this, and he knows how to play the game better. And I'm like, I guarantee you if I was actually playing, I would have run right into a wall, turned around, and you would have shot me. So, you know, I'm a big talker.
2: I feel like that's exactly what I would. I feel like I've done that. I played a a game with my brother, who is very good at video games. And I think I did exactly that just ran off somewhere, ran into a wall, died. And he just looked at me and said, what a noob. And I said, excuse you.
1: (laughs) Yep. All those things.
0: I, w- I would watch it. I would be very excited to watch. This.
1: <laughs> and and don't worry about it. Like we're academics, you know, we spend a lot of our time at computers. So you know, we, we have a, a long life ahead of us to nurture other talents. And, and exactly. we gather we gather them. Like we kind of gathered them for interviews like this along the way, so we can okay. answer this question. I, I sense a little bit of that happening sometimes. Uh, Flo, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you again.
0: It's been great. We're super excited for your new paper to come out and for your dissertation to be done. And yes. Uh where can folks get a hold of you if
2: they have any questions? Oh, um, because I'll be graduating, uh, email flo seven four one zero at gmail.com. They can email me.
1: Oh, you don't Perfect. keep flea? You don't get to keep flea?
2: I'm pretty sure I after I graduate, I won't be able to. I think mm. I'll be cut off that's a bummer it's
1: funny because i had a really good handle at one of the universities that i ended up dropping out of and it was part of my first name and part of my last name similarly so it ended up being christ lee l-y <laughs> and i liked it but then i chickened out about using it permanently because i didn't <laughs> um so uh, so but anyway yeah so are you on twitter or anything
2: i I'm i'm pretty sure i have a twitter account that i made like a while back, but I don't use it. Okay, we'll find it and
1: tag you so it can be shared. (laughs) And if you find your login, you can reshare it. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us again on the Sausage of Science. I have been Chris, you can find me at Chris underscore L-Y because I'm a chicken shit, left the T out. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And uh, I'm Malika, you can find me on Twitter at SkyMall, that's S-K-Y-Y underscore M-A-L. Um and you can find the human biology association and this podcast
1: at humbioassoc. yep really easy info to this. remember and now you all know the secret of why my twitter handle is weird like that
2: we learned so much <gasps> new information about you chris
0: i
1: know i know yeah. it's, it's really profound and fascinating isn't it
0: <laughs> new info every day we learn <laughs>
1: <laughs> if they make it to the end of the episode or or it's not edited out which you Make it sound good. Thank you to those guys as well, and we will see our hero uh, we'll be talking at everybody very soon. Thanks, love. Bye. 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 Bye.